Welcome to the one and only interior design book podcast. Decorating by the book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. Hello, or buongiorno, everyone. My name is Charlotte Horton, and I have just written a book called Castello di Potentino, A Tuscan Adventure, The Restoration of a Castle, published by Rizzoli. So let's start at the beginning. Yeah. And I am so curious to know how an English family ended up in Tuscany. My grandmother, who was a um, very interesting woman, she was an heiress. She did have quite a lot of a lot of money, and that gave her a certain independence. She came from the banking side of the Guinness family, and there were three daughters. So essentially, the wonderful patriarchal leaving everything to the to the son didn't really happen. So she grew up as a quite independent thinking woman. She married very very young to. Sir Hugh Green, um, who was the writer Graham Green's brother. And she married when she was 16. And he was then the Telegraph's correspondent to Berlin just before the Second World War. So she had a very interesting life. She divorced him very early on. Um, he was a fascinating man. He later became chairman of the BBC. Um, and he was probably a spy at that time in, in, in Berlin as well. But she then kind of went her own way and she became a literary agent. And she was one of the very first female literary agents. She was engaged to marry Raymond Chandler, the uh, noir detective writer who did all the sort of Humphrey Bogart private detective um, stories. Um, but he died and she then really started concentrating more as a literary agent and decided to launch a series of travel books of places that people normally didn't go to, like Sardinia and Corsica and the Aeolian Islands and Elba and Crete and some of the Greek islands. And she was on one of these research trips. Um, and I think it was Crete. She was waiting at a bus stop to get a bus into town. And there was a woman waiting at the bus stop too. And she started chatting to her. And during this conversation waiting for the bus, they were chatting about what they were doing there. And my grandmother said that she was doing research for a series of travel books, but that she wanted to also find a house for her retirement with her second husband. And this woman said, oh, you don't want to get something in the Greek islands. Everyone's buying houses on the Greek islands. You should go to this place, southern Tuscany, called the Maremma. It's between Pisa and Rome. Nobody's there. It's absolutely stunning. You've got the Mediterranean, you've got Italian culture, you're in Tuscany. And my grandmother didn't really take much notice. On her return to Great Britain, she found that there was a telegram from this woman saying, I've put a deposit down on a house for you in the Tuscan Maremma. And my grandmother was so surprised at this that she thought, well, let's go and have a look. Why not? Let's have an adventure. So she went and fell in love with this house. And that house was really the beginning of our experience and our love of this particular area, southern Tuscany, which is in the province of Grosseto. So that house she got in the early 70s. So we were holidaying and spending as much time as possible um, as we could in, in Italy. So I kind of, from the age of eight or so, was exposed to the 
delights of Italian life. She had such a zest for life. And reading about her, I feel like you take after her. Well, she, funnily enough, it's not a blood relation. It's, she's my step. Oh, my gosh. To be, to be fair. Um, so it's probably nurture, not nature. My family is full of steps. Someone said that I didn't have a family. I had a ladder because there were so <laughs> many steps. So another thing that we're very good at is remarrying and divorcing. And, well, actually, I haven't married at all. But that's probably because there were so many divorces in the family. <laughs> um, my mother... Uh, who grew up in one of the oldest in continuously inhabited houses in Kent in, in, in Great Britain, loved funny old places. They didn't have to be castles. They didn't have to be villas. This extraordinary thatched cottage in Wiltshire in Great Britain years ago, which had no electricity in the middle of a whole load of bridle paths. You know, you, you could ride for a whole day without meeting a, a tarmac road. And we stayed there with little oil lamps and a fire. And, you know, it was basically camping. Uh, but it was absolutely idyllic. So she had this great ability to spot these places that had some, not only charm and beauty, but some spirit, something about them, always in the midst of nature. And I think that's influenced me a lot. She was obviously involved in all of the crazy choices of uh, buying castles and restoring castles. So, you know, I think a lot of this is actually about, about, the, about women, yes. I think it is about women's, women's choices and um, the way that women um, would like to live and kind of the love and respect they have for nature and culture. So very nurturing approach. So in your early 20s, you started to chase your castle fantasy, as you call it. And that kicked off with Castle One in the summer of 1989. You and your friends set up home in a castle, in, which was like essentially camping. And I'd love to hear about that. So that really was a 20-year-old's dream to go and camp in a ruined Renaissance castle. It was really good fun. We had to put together old beds and beat out mattresses and chase out the rats. And there was one bathroom that sort of worked. There was a little bit of a dribble of water that came out of a tap. Um, you know, you cooking by gas. And so it was a wonderful, simple way of living. The weather was absolutely stunning, of course, because it was summer, so we weren't too cold. That really, I have to say, was everyone's Tuscan fantasy holiday. It lasted about two to three months. Um, and I think it was that period that really made me decide to, to leave London. After that, we started on the restoration of that castle. So it was builders and cranes, etc. So I moved into the only available accommodation, which was a ruined farmhouse above the cow shed. So I lived with the cows who uh, at night would be put inside into the shed. And, and I lived on top of the shed in a very simple farm workers house, which was without electricity and had no windows. Um, and I, I obviously lived by candlelight and 
you know, but that was also great fun because the cows would pee at night and they would make the most incredible peeing sound below me, um, which was kind of very, I don't know, it was quite reassuring in a funny way. It would be this wonderful peeing concert would would sort of go on at night. And I, it, funnily enough, with a little bit of, you know, lowing and movement and crunching of hay, it felt very, very soothing, almost sort of um, biblical, actually. I was sleeping above a main so every day was a bit like a sort of nativity scene. I suppose it was almost a bit monastic. I, I left London and all my friends and having been a sort of good time London freelance journalist, going to lots of parties and sort of living a, a you know, a, a, an urban life. For me to suddenly immerse myself um, with no telephone, because you didn't have portable telephones in those days, and nothing really. I, I absolutely loved it. And, and that was part also of what has gone into these restorations and this way of life is reassessing one's priorities and values about what is important and what you actually really need in life. So that that was quite an extreme, but it it laid the foundations for also me being able to do what I had to then do, which was to also being at ease with yourself in this beautiful rural situation. So moving on to the mid-1990s, you were doing research in the London Library and came across a picture of Castello di Potentino in a book. What intrigued you about this castle? It was very mysterious. It was sort of shrouded in clouds. It was an old photograph and it was completely encased in ivy and trees and rose bushes and it actually almost looked a bit Japanese it looked a bit like a sort of remote Shangri-La samurai castle in Tuscany up in the mountains because it was a little bit further up the mountain from from um castle number one and I was like I never didn't know there was this mysterious place up there and it immediately attracted me also because of its name Potentino means little strong one or little potent one and I was like, what a great name. And at, at Castle Number One, we would have all sorts of very interesting, um, prestigious guests because my stepfather at that time was chairman of the British Museum. And so we would often have guests um, who had interests architecture or archaeology or art in some way. So I would arrange little trips for us to go off and, and see things of interest in the area. So, of course, one day I decided that we should go to try and find this Castello di Pontino. So we all bundled into the car and went trailing off, got lost, couldn't find it. And then eventually we managed to, to locate it down a very bumpy track. And it really was like the Beauty and the Beast. It had this air of sad neglect that it was uh, really just looking for someone to to come and bring it back to, to life. And we were with a very well-known art historian called um, Sir John Hale, who was a, um, an expert in, in Renaissance fortifications and uh, the Renaissance in general. And he had sat very sadly had a stroke, so he couldn't really talk. But what he did do, and I will never forget this, is that he mined his sense of wonder and amazement at what an extraordinary building this was. So it was without words. He just looked at me and he did this beautiful mime of awe and amazement and magic 
left and went to the local bar to have a, um, a coffee or something. And of course, discovered that it was for sale for a lot of owners. And at that time, we weren't actually considering selling Castle Number One, but it always stuck in my my brain that. So when we did decide to sell Castle Number One, everyone was like, "Well, where should we go then? What should we do? We've got all this furniture. What should we do?" And I said, "Well, why don't we try and buy that other ruined castle?" So my very mad and enthusiastic family were like, oh, okay, well, yes, why not? Let's let's have a look at it. So it really was a very strange roll of the dice, the whole thing. So perhaps it was destiny, who knows? Now, is it true that there were 24 different owners and you had to negotiate with them? Yes, we got everyone together, but getting two Italians to agree to something is extremely difficult. But getting 24 is was quite something. So it was a lot of negotiation, a lot of sitting down, a lot of convincing, a lot of getting these people to understand that, you know, we were were going to buy it and, you know, we had the money. But then they all started bickering and fighting about how much each little parcel of the castle that they owned was worth and whether because one had fireplace in it it was worth more than the other one and so all of this um took a very long time to untangle but we were dedicating so a lot of people say how did you do that and that's because me and my mother uh we were dedicating our time to to pushing this through and would talk to people individually it was touch and go. Very exciting. Well, as exciting as that was, for me, reading the rundown of the state of the castle was a bit overwhelming. Could you talk a little bit about the windows, doors, and the water? So there was no water. There were no bathrooms. So there was a hole, a sort of medieval hole in one of the towers, and there was no electricity. All the windows were broken. All the doors were broken. Anything that was of any value uh, had been stolen or removed. The rooms were full of rubbish because nobody took rubbish away in those days. So I think what people did is that they just found an empty room and put rubbish in the empty room. So the castle just began to fill up until there really were no empty rooms to to leave rubbish. So there were bottles and old mattresses and old books. Luckily, there weren't any rats because there was no food and the rats had gone away because there was absolutely nothing for them to eat. What was wonderful was there were a lot of swallow nests because the swallows had really used it as a sort of motel because all the windows were open. So there were a lot of swallows, nests, owls, birds, everything. It took us, I think, about two to three weeks with eight men to clean out the rubbish before we could even see exactly what we needed to do. So it was a long process. And then we sold the other castle and we suddenly had a whole castle full of furniture. So bit by bit, you recovered each room, painted and decorated it, saving as much of the colors and designs you found. Was there ever a time when you thought, oh my goodness, this is too daunting, this is impossible? There were moments when I couldn't stop. I'm a bit of an obsessive. So um, I like to achieve and finish things so I can move on to the 
the next thing. So I didn't have that idea. I was so driven by this vision to see the castle come back to life. I, no, I was, there was never a dull moment. There were struggles and there were moments that things were, were difficult, but never a moment where I felt like giving up. So you describe this castle as ancient, but at the same time modern and forward thinking. How so? Places like this, it's just a continuum, really. They exist in the past and if you bring them back to life, they exist in the future and they have a purpose um, for for us now. That's why I think it's also uh, modern. So we do a lot of things here that we call it the, the 21st century castle because we obviously do a lot of work here with guests and hosting things and concerts and we've done uh, contemporary music here and we've had contemporary artists here. We've had a contemporary poet here writing about the castle. We published some books. Um, we've got a little printing press, the Potentino Press. We do obviously sell our wine and our gin and our vermouth. And now we're doing honey and we've got olive oil. Um, we're about to start an archaeological and botanical survey of the valley um, with some universities. Um, so we're going to have 16 students and eight professors here in the summer. We've also got some taxonomists coming to look um, at the biodiversity in the valley. Um, so there's always something that we're, we're up to and looking to push forward our horizons all the time. I'd love to chat about the grand dining room on page 96. So there's a 20 foot dining room table and plates on the wall. And I think I've heard you say that that you were inspired by the movie The Leopard? Yes, I, I love Visconti as a director. He captures these extraordinary pivotal moments in, in history. And obviously The Leopard is, is one of his great films. But he also had this incredible eye for detail and not only detail in dress, in manners, but in uh, interiors. And all of his details are absolutely perfect. He apparently, when making his films in the sets, which were often in old palaces and castles, which belonged to the old Italian noble families, he he, he used them to make the, the films. So the interiors are all pretty authentic. But when, when creating a set, he would make sure that even the drawers had period objects or clothes or gloves or fans or whatever in them. So I was I was looking at the leopard and our dining room has a vaulted ceiling. So we couldn't really put any paintings or anything framed on the walls because it wouldn't work. And they were a bit sort of white and bare. It was a rather large expanse. And I was kind of racking my brains thinking, what what could we put here? So I noticed at the great scene in um, Prince's dining room um, that the candle sconces are all surrounded with wonderful old plates. So I went, there we go. We had cupboards full of uh, incomplete but beautiful um, sets of porcelain. And I was like, there we go. Bring them back to life. Let everyone enjoy them. 
Um, it did take a rather long time hanging all of them, though, getting it all right um, and drilling holes and putting them into plate holders and getting them up there. Um, but we keep adding to it, which is fun. Um, but I think I've now exhausted our supply of old plates. And on the ceiling, you have the most gorgeous Zodiac painting. So most palaces and castles, even since Babylonian times, but certainly through the Roman period and up to the Renaissance, all had cosmological ceilings in them. There's some very famous ones. Uh, including the one in Caprarola, which is an extraordinary Renaissance palace. So I was chatting with a a friend who's an artist, um, and we were like, what should we do there? I said, why don't we do a cosmological ceiling? So we both got very excited about this idea and did lots of research. And I was like, well, we probably need to do something not as heavy and as detailed as some of these renaissance ceilings let's do something a little bit more influenced by cocteau and matisse we did a a slightly more modern version of a cosmological ceiling with some funny little jokes and little references to things to do with our lives or to do with uh, the castle um, and things that happen here which is traditional also in a cosmological ceiling they used to make little jokes in them uh, witty little jokes so there are a few little jokes there is a prize to be given to anyone who gets exactly the right date when the stars are like that above the castle. So it's also a little bit of a puzzle. So on page 86, the chapel caught my eye with its fruit garlands and colorful cherubs. Can you talk a little bit about that? We did decide to really try to leave the chapel as it had had more or less been. But the altar had been painted probably in the 1950s or 60s in rather bright technicolor colors, which were a bit garish, let's say. So the fruit was sort of bright orange and bright green and bright blue. Um, And the little cherubs had quite sort of like rouged cheeks and things and little golden curls. So an art historian restorer friend of mine who restored it very delicately back to the probably the original sort of ivory bone colour. So you can really see the quality of, of the plaster work. Another room I love, well, I love them all, um, is your white sitting room. And you have a magnificent chinoiserie piece. Could you talk a little bit about that? So the chinoiserie piece um, came from the Guinness family. And it was made in Dublin and it's always been in the family. It's um, it's rather sort of whimsical, I suppose. I like it because it's very whimsical. Um, all of it's, it's got little sort of dangly Chinese bits on it. And if you walk across the room, it all wobbles. And it's a perfect display place for some of the better porcelain that, that we have. But there's something a bit sort of um, theatrical about it. That's why I, I really, really enjoy that piece. And it's beautifully made. The craftsmanship is extraordinary. So there's a line in the book that I just love. And you wrote, places can take over destinies of the people who live in them. What does that mean to you? Well, I think you get shaped by place if you have a relationship with it. And Potentino, not just the castle, but also the land, has had an enormous influence on my development and my life. It's kind of symbiotic, really. It's kind of a mutualism. 
So I, I give to it, it gives to me, um, certainly the land does that. I mean, obviously I'm a, a winemaker as well. So winemaking is, is very much represents that type of visceral relationship that you get with, with a place. And obviously we make the wine at Pochentino in the cellars. And uh, I think if you work with a place and really live it, it becomes transformative in the same way that you transform the grapes that have grown from the land, from a plant that is living off the soil, then it's transformed into something. So I think transforming is a, is a very important part of, of having a profound relationship with place. Could you please read the afterword on page 219? Sure. sure. Now seems to be a good time to reconnect with the environment that initially created and nurtured our civilization and to look after the planet that gave us our humanness. Otherwise, the future looks very bleak. We need to be more aware of where our food comes from and how it is actually produced. We need to take more care of trees and plants, animals and insects that we have taken for granted. Even in my magic paradise, the olive trees are suffering from La Mosca, which was not here 20 years ago. And the chestnut trees, they're being destroyed by another insect, the Chinipide. We are terrified of the arrival of the Ixella bacteria, which has devastated the olives in Puglia. The weather patterns are bizarre, production is irregular, and the Suzuki fly may be the next for the vines. Geothermal fracking, now called energy farming, is on the horizon for the Amiata mountain. So pollution and reduction of aquifers is a potential threat to our ecosystem and health. The unique biodiversity and history of the Golden Valley around Potentino becomes more and more valuable. Protecting it is simply and clearly a duty. That's so powerful. So a uh, last question I want to ask you is about the photo. And you're in a suit of your favorite designer, Yves Saint Laurent. So tell me about that suit. And did you know, I know you worked at Vogue. Did you know him? Did you meet him? No, no, I was, I was not, um, I'm not, not, uh, not quite, uh, I wasn't old enough uh, when I was at Vogue to hang around with Yves Saint Laurent. I was a, uh, a gopher in the fashion room, really. But I did have the great chance to be there with Grace Coddington. But no, actually, I think my love for Yves Saint Laurent, I think my mother had a lot of Yves Saint Laurent clothes and I always thought they were extremely um, chic and elegant. And then when I was growing up, you could buy a lot of really good Yves Saint Laurent clothes secondhand for not very much. And so that was my access to being chic and elegant. Um, was really through vintage Yves Saint Laurent. I just find him a very clear designer. I think they're uh, very beautiful. He has a very beautiful cut and um, a great sense also of how women like to work and be active and look cool. Where can we find you on the web and social media? On um, Instagram, we're Castello di Potentino, Facebook as well, and we also 
have a website which is potentino.com. But if you look up Castello di Potentino, you'll find us pretty much everywhere. To purchase a Tuscan adventure, head on over to decoratingbythebook.com. And thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming on Decorating by the Book podcast. Well, thank you, Susie. I've loved, as usual, talking about myself and what I get up to. Fantastic. Thank you. Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast, Decorating by the Book.